spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Trying not to take the lightning strike challenge, it is episode 260 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. Yeah, the storms that we've been having here, the Down and Nerdy Podcast studios, I've only almost been struck by lightning like four times, and I don't think I would have turned into Shazam, but I do have our spoiler-filled review of the Shazam movie with Zachary Levi, so excited to talk about that, and of course, to share my interviews that I did while I was at WonderCon with the cast and the producers of Justice League versus the Fatal Five, the new DC animated movie, which looks amazing. So many great interviews, including, that's right, the Trinity. Got Susan Eisenberg, Kevin Conroy, George Newbern, all joining me this week, along with the rest of the cast. I also have a brand new sponsor this week, a great deal to tell you about from Audible coming up a little bit later on the show. But you know what we do first? Talking about comics, what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Aaron Campbell, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Whether you're reading on your tablet or your laptop, or you're pulling the old bags and boards out of the long box, whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading and something very, very different from Boom Studios this week. It's Faithless Number 1, written by Brian Azzarello, Maria Lovett on the art and world design on the letters. Now, this follows a woman named Faith who just seems like she... Her life is just really, really out of sorts from what we can tell. There's no spe- nothing specific wrong with her per se. It's just like she either can't catch a break or she can't figure out exactly where her life is going. Now, she's dabbling in magic, but when I say magic, it's it's in a more realistic sense. She And she has a circle of friends and some acquaintances, but it's someone that she will meet for the first time that will really, really change her life in some very interesting ways. Now, she spends the entire day with this person. I'm really trying to be spoiler-free here. It's really difficult because of what happens in this book. And she literally bumps into this person while she's getting coffee, and this is a, and ends up on a whirlwind of a day that you never really expect. Now, have you ever met someone that's completely unique from your perspective? Somebody unlike any other person that you've ever met before. And yeah, you'd probably say that about your significant other, right? Especially if you're married, you're thinking, this is, the, this is the most unique and wonderful person that I've ever met. I'm talking about just strictly unique. Like this is a one-of-a-kind person that you've never come across from before. That is exactly what I feel like Faith is experiencing in this book. And it's really, really interesting. Now, we see how close they become in such a short time. And there might be much more than that. That meets the eye. And I know that's a little bit of a cliche, but you'll understand what I mean when I when I tell you about it. And that and that's kind of where and there's a nice little kind of it's hard to call it a cliffhanger. It's something that you can only understand if you read the book. And that's I'm sorry I can only put it that way without completely ruining what happens. Now, right off the bat, I can tell you this book is definitely erotic. It's right there on the cover. Too, by the way, it says that it is, and it's very sexually explorative. That's for sure. Now, it's also nice to see a book give a take on magic from a religious and way of life perspective. It's not exactly traditional magic, and the way her friends react to what she's doing is also really, really an interesting part of this book as well. Because if you ever, if you know somebody that also does that in the in their day to day life and practices Wicca and stuff like that then you know you understand the re- kind of reactions that, that kind of gets. Now, I'm not saying that she's wicked. I'm not saying that faith is that, but I'm saying it's very similar to someone who practices wicked and, and other things similar to that. Now, time will tell if it turns into more than that, though, if it is more than just she's dabbling in something that she thinks is interesting. As far as the art goes in this book, it is very vivid and definitely shines through in its close-up panels, but there's shading that depicts emotions in this book that really, really works out very well. But as far as the entire story goes, it's hard for me to put a pulse on how I feel about it just yet because I don't feel like we really have a clear-cut idea of where it's going and what exactly is happening. That's not necessarily a bad thing either. I just feel like this this was very, very introductory and it's hard for me to give an opinion on it one way or another. It's definitely intriguing though. This book definitely 
made me wonder what was going to happen next. And that's something that at, at, at bare bones you absolutely have to have when you're telling a story. And I have a lot of faith in Brian Azzarello, though. I've liked a lot of his stuff, not just the DC stuff, but some of his creator-owned stuff as well. And this one definitely has my attention, but I can't quite put it in the pull box yet. Let's go ahead and give this a pickup. We'll give this another issue or two to see how things progress and pick up, and maybe I'll recommend adding it to the pull box then. I can tell you with this next book, though, you know right off the bat what's going on for sure. It's Orphanage Number 1 from Aftershock Comics. Ted Anderson doing the writing, art by Nuno Plati, letters by Marshall Dillon, and also covers by Nuno Plati as well. Now, here's the deal. One day, and I have to spoil a little bit of this to even be able to tell you anything about it, so this is kind of a big spoiler for Orphanage Number 1. In the very beginning of the book, that you find out that there's a society where one day all of the adults in the world, all of them, just up and die. And then there's a 20-year time jump in the book to talk about the society that's been built since. I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, just right there, just something that really, really piques your interest, that to me, and I know that there's been similar, kind of similar stories done before, but this one just had my attention from the very beginning, for sure. Now, the def- the world definitely seems more simple, and people are doing what they can to kind of live happy lives, it seems. And we get to see one of these peaceful peaceful communities in the book, but that, you know, it's comics, that doesn't really last long. And things go south pretty quickly. There's this radical force. You know what, I'll just call it what it is, because it's in the description on the Aftershock website. It's a religious group called the New Church. Now, they are heavily armed, and they want people to either bow to them or cease to exist. I mean, that's pretty much the way it is. So, I mean, you can only imagine how that went when they didn't get exactly what they wanted. Now, I will tell you, there are a few survivors of this that managed to escape this small town, and that's kind of where the first issue ends. I know that this sounds really, really simple, okay? It sounds like maybe a whole lot doesn't happen in this book. But this book was really interesting to me. The hook of the story drew me right away. just felt so different, and a different tone, than survivalist stories that you've read before. There was a real focus on good people who are just trying to help each other out. And it was just refreshing to me. You see books that are similar to this that are very dystopian, very, you know, end of days, very post-apocalyptic. This just didn't feel like that at all. We don't even really get to see the world too far outside of this small little area of this community. I can't really call it a town. It is more like... A community, And I mean, yeah, sure, there's evil people, and we get to see that in the new church, in this book, even though we don't know a lot about them. But people will not shy away from helping one another, even in a crisis. There's a moment in this book where one person helps another, and I won't tell you specifically what it is because that's one spoiler I definitely don't want to give you. And you're like, wow, after such a short amount of time, you're willing to do this for this person. And it's amazing to me. So even in dire circumstances like this, You don't see people, you know, turning just into a bunch of crazies and seeing all these people killing each other and just see wasteland. No, you see communities that were built up and doing what you had to do and being a part of a community and helping one another. And that, to me, was just so, so great. I was very impressed with the art, too, by the way. Great detail work, especially on the eyes. The eyes tell so much of the story in the panels of comics. And this one really, really does that. It actually, too, if you look at it, it really had that color newsprint look, even in the digital form, I thought that that was really, really neat. That always adds a little bit of nostalgia for me and something that I think is interesting. Maybe you didn't get that from the book. I I certainly did. So I appreciated that if that's what they're going for. This one, I think, is a pull for me just because I'm so hooked by this story that they're telling. And it just, there's something that I feel like in in my gut is coming from this book. And I just love the vibe taking a bit of a more positive take. I'm not sure that it'll stay that way necessarily, but certainly this is a different tone from other survivalist stories that I've read, so this is a pull for me. It's going to do it for what we're reading up next. Yep, it's time for my spoiler-filled review of Shazam! We'll do it next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Aaron Pierre from Krypton on Sci-Fi, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. We're going to say the name and hope we can take the power. That's right, this week our spoiler-filled review of Shazam from DC. And I got to tell you, yes, there will be a ton of spoilers 
from here on out. I'm not going to do one of those things where I talk about a whole bunch of Easter eggs. You know, that's stuff that you've read in articles. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to go give my opinion of the movie if you've never listened to a review on the show before. That's kind of the way that I do things around here. So, first of all, I got to tell you, I have a Shazam glass at my house. It's been in my family for a long time. And I, I mean, it's it's a glass. So obviously it hasn't been around for like generations or anything. But it's it's been around for a while, since, since at least the 70s, from what I can recall. Certainly from before I was born. No question about that. And I've always kept it because I've always had this just great love for the character. It's not a character like Batman or anything like that. That, you know, you, you experience every day, but you, every time I get a chance to pick up something Shazam-related, I, I always gravitate towards that character. And the second that Zachary Levi was cast as Shazam, first of all, I'm a huge Zachary Levi fan. I make no apologies for that, and maybe I'm a little bit biased. But I'm like, this guy is absolutely 100% perfect for this role. I can't believe they went through like 100 guys before they landed on him, because he absolutely showed why he was perfect for this role. I mean, obviously, he he just has that likability about him, first of all. Second of all, he is like a big kid, you know, just like I am in certain respect. And if you're a comic book fan, how can you not be to a certain extent? But Zachary Levi takes that to a level that is just absolutely incredible. To me, he has like this Kevin Smith-like energy when he approaches something. In any, I mean, even as Chuck Bartowski, he had the same thing. When if you if you're a Chuck fan, he brought that energy level to this Shazam character so much that it was so infectious that it almost didn't even matter what the rest of the movie was about, even though it was pretty darn good. And I'll tell you why here in a couple minutes. It just seeing him in this role and knowing too that he appreciated every single second of it. Because he's a nerd just like you and me. It just added to my enjoyment of this movie so much. So thanks to Zachary Levi for that, for sure. Now, speaking of the way the rest of the story went, the one thing I was worried about going into this movie was the Billy Batson factor. Because I'm like, okay, they're just going to portray him as a, you know just a bad kid, you know, kind of a brat, doesn't want to be around anybody, you know, kind of wants to be a loner and, and try and find his family. No, what they did was they just portrayed this kid who was just lost. Not necessarily damaged. I mean, there was certainly some of that. But they portrayed a kid that was just lost and wanted to find that one path back to what he thought was home. And that was finding his mom when he got lost all those years ago. That was his singular focus, and it didn't matter what else was going on around him. And it wasn't until he was forced to pay attention to what was going on around him just because of the sheer positivity that was going on in that last Foster household that he was in. It was infectious. That I mean, I know I've used that word already, but that's exactly what it felt like. It was almost like there was so much positivity and love in that household that you absolutely had to pay attention. And the, the parents, how they were also fosters themselves, they also went through the system. That has to count for something, right? Absolutely had to count for something. So that, that added to it, I think, for him. And eventually, slowly but surely, you see him start to come around. I mean, meeting his mom towards the end of the movie there. I mean, that certainly lent itself to, to you know, kind of pushing him in the direction of, finding out who his real family is. But I mean, think about it. You, you have a girl, like a little girl like Darla, who was so sweet. And you just wanted her to be your little sister, right? Or your daughter, depending on what your age is. That's the kind of kid that you just want to have around. And the relationship that he sort of developed with Freddy as the movie went on. By, by the way, Jack Dylan Grazer did a wonderful job as Freddie Freeman. And I don't, I don't think that that's something that's being said enough in reviews. And just the chemistry that he had with Billy throughout the movie, and of course, Billy was played by Asher Angel. Just the chemistry that they had together, I thought was really, really cool. And they had this, like, a not necessarily a reluctant best friends vibe, but kind of more so on Billy's side because he just didn't really want to be close to anybody regardless. It didn't matter who they were. But he ends up, Billy ends up in this house with, with, with kids from all different walks of life. And parents as well. 
too, by the way. But he could not get rid of that singular focus until he starts building this bond with Freddy over the whole superhero thing. And I loved the whole testing out his powers thing. That was hilarious. And then you've got, you know, he has a couple of encounters with, you know, low-level bad guys who are trying to rob stores and stuff and steal purses. And the one time he tries to help that woman and she doesn't need his help. I thought that was really funny, too. There was just a lot of really funny, crazy moments in this movie that that I just loved. And I don't really laugh out loud at movies that often, even if, they're, even if they tend to be funny. But I laughed out loud several times during this movie, for sure. And I expected to. It's even harder to laugh at something when you're going in expecting it to be funny, right? And then when it, it, when it kind of is, you know, you chuckle a little bit. But laughing out loud, that's a whole other story. You know you like how you have your friend... You'll, everybody's got one that'll text you LOL in a text. You know they're not really laughing out loud and they do it at everything. You think this person's a lunatic. They LOL all the time. No, I actually actually laughed out loud several times when I was watching this movie. And again, that, that that's something that just added to my enjoyment of the whole thing. And then to watch, you know, Billy sort of let it go to his head. And he and Freddie get at odds a little bit. And that was uncomfortable because of the relationship that they built throughout that movie. But again, it was never Billy being a jerk. Even though, yeah, he had some jerk-ish moments in this movie. But you had to remember, when you're looking back at this, is that you're dealing with kids. He is still a teenager at the end of the day. And how could something like this not go to his head? Especially since this isn't a kid that had this, you know, wonderful family upbringing. He wasn't really taught much of anything. And some of these other fosters. Now, they said how he was in good foster homes before and why do you keep running away, Billy, and stuff like this. Uh, So I get it. I'm not saying he never had any good parents. He never wanted to learn anything from any of these people. So he wasn't going to. That's the thing. So how could he not let something like these powers and the attention that he was getting from the YouTube channel they created, how could he not let that go, get to his head? And it absolutely did. And it ends up kind of biting him, going against Dr. Savannah, who wants to take this power of Shazam. By the way, I love the villain origin story and how that started in the beginning of the movie where you see him as a child get rejected for the power, right? Because he wanted to take the eye. And you're not supposed to take the eye. You can't let the sins out. So... He gets rejected, and then all these, and he spends basically his entire life trying to get back there and find it, and either take the power or exact revenge, one of the, one or the other. But I will tell you that that made, and the way that he was dealt with by his family, the way he was treated by his family, that made Doctor Savannah the perfect villain for this first Shazam movie. I know I was one of the people that said, "Why not do Black Adam right away?" I, I was absolutely one of those people, and I'm not going to lie. When when I first when it was my first knee-jerk reaction, and then you think about it a little bit, and then you see it on the screen, and the storyline that they were going with with Billy, that almost runs somewhat concurrently to what Dr. Zavanna went through as a child. So there's not necessarily a bond there, but you get to see Billy try to use that a little bit later on, saying, look, dude, I know what it's like to have my family not care about me or treat me like crap. And I know exactly how you feel. You don't have to do this sort of thing. And it almost works too, doesn't it? For like a split second, you actually think it's going to work. And then you go, nah, it can't be that easy. And then it isn't. But then, first of all, this was a formidable villain. Don't get me wrong. And you you had the seven deadly sins and they certainly posed their certain set of problems. And he was certainly powerful enough. But if you think about it, you're talking about a brand new Shazam, right? This is a kid that isn't even fully comfortable with his powers and what he can even do until, I mean, maybe not even the end of the movie, right? You can't say he's 100% comfortable with all of his powers right there at the end. He's really not, if you think about it. So then you've got Dr. Savannah, who's pretty powerful, but not on the level of, say, a Black Adam. So if you put Black Adam in this movie, this Shazam, this Billy Batson cannot handle him. It's not going to happen. You cannot put this villain in the first movie. They absolutely, positively did the right thing there. You put Black Adam against this Shazam, it's a bloodbath. And that is not something that DC was going for with this movie. I know Dark and Brooding is sometimes DC's wheelhouse. Not what they were going for here. So that's why you you, you couldn't use Black Adam. Dr. Zavanna was a relatable villain. 
to its hero, and it just made sense with the entire vibe that was going on in the story. So it was absolutely perfect choice of villain. I'll get to the end credits scene before we wrap this up, though. Don't worry about that. But I just, I'm man, I can't keep, I can't just stop going back to the fact that this was such a family-driven story. There wasn't a bunch of superhero action left and right. There wasn't stuff exploding and, you know, big boss fights and big super villain fights, right? No, no, no. This was a family-driven story. And Billy finding his way to the family that he has always been looking for and didn't even know he would find in this in this foster family. And I got to tell you, big, big spoiler, by the way, in the final fight, when you get, when we finally get the Shazam family and we get to see everybody all grown up and supered up, right? I was so waiting for that moment in this movie and I wasn't sure we were actually going to get it. I, I mean, I thought we might, but I wasn't sure if we would get that now or in an end credits type thing. I'm so glad that we got this at the end of this movie and it was such a great moment to watch them just kind of all deal with it. And then you're not even shell-shocked by having powers either. That's the thing with kids. That's the thing I realized when I became a dad is that kids just are unfazed by stuff that phase adults. Like as an adult or even as a teenager, you get something like superpowers and you'd be like, whoa. You might think, hey, cool, this is awesome. But at the same time, you're thinking, oh my God, what do I do? And these kids just sort of just go. And they showed that. And the adult versions of these kids just matched up so perfectly to their personalities. I'm sure that they studied each other sort of thing. And just matched up so perfectly, especially Darla, too, by the way. I loved that. Darla was one of my favorite characters in this whole movie. I'm not going to lie. Whether it be grown up or, or little Darla. I, mean, just, I just enjoyed that so, so much. Enjoyed her performance. So uh, that was something I was really happy to see. And it's straight out of the comics, I thought, as a matter of fact. And how that's going to grow in the sequel, I think it's going to be really, really cool. And watching them hide this from the parents, I think it's going to be really, really neat as well. Or maybe they won't. Maybe the parents will find out. A little bit sooner than we think, and that'll be part of the angle of the story. So, you know, fast forward now to the one end credit scene. We'll only talk about the mid credit scene, actually, where we see Dr. Savannah scribbling on the walls, right? And you're wondering, okay, the Caterpillar, what is the deal with the Caterpillar? And I know that maybe you had to Google it. That is absolutely okay. There's no shame in having to Google it. You can't know every freaking character okay of every of every character it's just not realistic so we basically are dealing with mr mind here and that is the that is the villain that's going to be coming up possibly in the sequel at least in in some respect anyway and we have you know of course that kind of opens the door for the monster society of evil and all kinds of different stuff i mean you could even go as far as saying you could open the door for Justice League Dark through Shazam. I actually saw that in an article that popped up. You know, somebody put an opinion piece up about that already as well. So, I mean, this just opens... Shazam has opened up a world of possibilities. And yeah, we do get kind of a Superman cameo towards the end when Billy shows up as Shazam to have lunch with Freddy. And, you know, so Freddy doesn't get beat up by the bullies. And he brings Superman with him from the neck down. So we don't see who's in the Superman suit, who the head is. Very clever on Warner Brothers and DC's part to do it that way, by the way. But man, I just can't stop thinking about how amazing this was. I mean, how they dealt with the bullying aspect too. And that's kind of what brought the family together, him and Freddie together at first, right? To battling, battling those bullies in the school. And just this story of found family all wrapped up into an amazing superhero story with a, with a great Performance by Zachary Levi. How do I not give this 10 lightning bolts out of 10? Because I'm gonna. I love Shazam, and I actually can't wait to see it again. This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Audible. I love reading great stories, but sometimes reading isn't always an option, you know, say, when you're driving. That's why I love Audible. I just use the convenient free app, and I can listen on the go, hands-free, on my Android or Amazon Fire devices. With Game of Thrones coming back this week, I decided it was a great time to actually start the books from the very beginning of Game of Thrones. You could do the same thing. Start listening with a 30-day Audible trial and your first audiobook plus two Audible originals are free. Visit audible.com slash dnpod 
or text DNPOD to 500-500. Audible.com slash DNPOD or text DNPOD to 500-500 now. Pick any title you want, whether it's sci-fi, fantasy, or maybe something out of your comfort zone. I mean, it's free. Go to audible.com slash DNPOD or text DNPOD to 500 Five zero zero now. Plus, when you use Audible, you don't rent your books. You own the books in your library forever. Even if you don't like something, there's an easy audiobook exchange with credits you can roll over for a year. Listening makes you smarter and more connected to fellow fans. So when you're not listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast, you should be listening to what you're reading on Audible. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Shazam. Up next, let's get to some nerd news, shall we? On the Down and Nerdy podcast. Hello, this is Tom Ellis from Lucifer on for Down and Nerdy Podcast. Definitely going to be looking at things on the plus side this week because it's time for nerd news. And, you know, just when I thought it was a slow news week, Disney did not disappoint. We finally have those details on Disney Plus. So here we go. Buckle in. This is going to take a while, okay? November 12th is the day they're going to launch the service. It's going to be $6.99 per month or $69.99 per year, which is about, eh, about a dollar off or so. Per month. No, I am not even kidding about that price. That is the actual price, but we'll get to that in a second. So here's what we're going to get, it looks like, at launch. We're going to get 7,500 episodes of current and off-air TV shows. This all from the release, the the special thing that they did when, when Disney was doing their shareholders webcast thing that they were doing. We also have 25 original series. This is at launch. 10 original movies and in specials, 400 library movies, 100 recent theatrical releases, which it looks like when they do do these theatrical releases, it'll be, for, for as far as current movies anyway, everything from Captain Marvel on. So stuff that's not even out yet will be available on that November date. So keep that in mind as I'm going here. The service will also be ad-free, by the way. And another kicker, at launch, all content will be available for download for offline viewing. And as someone who has a toddler, that is extremely important and very, very forward thinking on Disney's part, but I'm not done. The user interface, they kind of showed how the app worked and it was just so clean, very, very simple and easy to navigate, which again, you want if you have those independent kids like mine who want to try and find the things themselves, they make it look very, very easy. Now, here we go. Some of the other announcements that have been announced by various outlets and were also announced on this stream. First of all, all the Star Wars movies are going to be available within the first year of service. So not necessarily here in 2019 because the service is launching in November. But all of the Star Wars movies will be available eventually within the first year of this service existing. So that is a very important detail, especially when it comes to A New Hope, which was probably the sticking point before they bought 20th Century Fox and 21st Century Fox. But, you know, we'll get beyond that now. So, time to actually confirm some stuff. Vision and Scarlet Witch, that is confirmed. It will be called WandaVision, which is probably what I would have called it in one of those things that just sounded funny in my head, but never, I, but I never thought would actually happen, and they're doing it. So, I love Disney for that already. The Falcon Winter Soldier series, that is confirmed as well. Loki series has been confirmed. Here's maybe one of my favorite ones of all. Remember me, I was talking about the Marvel What If animated anthology series that they were going to be doing, right? Well, here's the deal. The first one is going to be What If Peggy Carter was the one that became the super soldier and Chris Evans himself Yes, Captain America was still the scrawny guy that just couldn't get into the army. Man, I'll tell you, that is a fantastic idea on their part. I love that concept already. And Agent Carter fans have got to be jumping up and down right now. Seriously, how exciting is that? And that's just, if that's their first idea, I love this already. It's just so fantastic to me. But... Going to move on a little bit here because there's a ton. We also have confirmed the Mandalorian. Yes, it is going to be coming for later this year. And, you know, that seems to imply that it's going to be coming out in 2019. I'm thinking right around the time Episode 9 hits theaters, either a little bit before or a little bit after. I'm thinking a little bit after. Probably uh, since then, maybe right around Christmas time. 
is when we're going to get that. That would be a good Christmas present for me, actually. Put The Mandalorian on Disney+. Plus. I'd be all about that. The Hawkeye series that's been reported by Variety that we saw, you know, maybe you see Jeremy Renner's Clint pass the torch to Kate Bishop. Maybe that happens in the series. Not confirmed during this cast, but looks like that's probably going to happen as well. Did I mention, by the way, and we were hoping for this, the Marvel Cinematic Universe actors and actresses will be reprising their roles on these shows. This is unprecedented. To see someone go from a movie to a television series about their character and maintaining that character. That kind of stuff just doesn't happen. This is what happens when you have Disney money. But again, we're going to be talking about Disney money here in just a second and the implications of all this stuff. There was also a couple of more Marvel series that were announced by Marvel.com. We have Marvel's Heroes Project and Marvel's 616. Basically, the Heroes Project is going to reveal the remarkable and positive change several young heroes are making in their own communities. So that's what it's, that's what that's going to do. And Marvel's 616, which is kind of a working title anyway, it's going to be an anthological documentary series exploring the, exploring the intersection between Marvel's rich legacy of stories, characters, and creators, and the world outside your window. So that is the gist for that. I mean, it looks pretty interesting to me, but again... There are so many... I mean, we had the Monsters, Inc. series that was announced not too long ago. I could go on and on just about the stuff that's been announced for this Disney streaming service. We'd be here all day. Did I also mention that The Simpsons is going to be on Disney+, Plus, the exclusive streaming video-on-demand home of The Simpsons, all 30 seasons, by the way. So, FX, that whole Every Simpsons Everything, yeah, not happening for you anymore. Sorry about that. Now, here's the deal. I'm going to go back to the price point here for just a second because we're talking about $6.99 per month or $69.99 per year, which works out to what, like $5.83, something like that per month. If you want to do the math, break out your calculator. We've got more important things to talk about right now. So just to put this in perspective, Netflix is $12.99 a month. We also have HBO which is $14.99 a month. And if I'm not mistaken, Stars on Demand is about $9 per month. I want you to think about that for a second. So this is going to be less than half the amount of HBO. About half of what Netflix is charging. By the way, Netflix just raised their rates not too long ago, or they're going to be. So let's keep that in mind as well. And you've also got Stars, which I love. And hey, I love Outlander, and so does my wife. But if you think about what you're getting for stars for $9.99 and what you're getting for the Disney streaming service here, Disney Plus, it pales in comparison, doesn't it? It really, really does. I mean, how could you not feel that way? And that's not to throw shade at stars or HBO or Netflix. It's just that this is what Disney has decided to do. Disney, this is the biggest attempt yet to kill Netflix, to kill HBO and anything else. That stands in Disney's way, basically. Because this is Disney saying that they are willing to basically lose money. Now, that's never their intention. They're going to get millions of subscribers right off the bat. They, they projected, I think it was like 20 to, to 40 million subscribers by 2024 or something like that. They're going to probably hit that a lot sooner than they would think. Because you, you foam at the mouth thinking of all the things that are available on this service. And... Then you look at something like Netflix, which I love so many things on Netflix. I love so many things on HBO, but there are also a lot of clunkers there. And I'm not saying that Disney Plus isn't going to have that. But look what Disney Plus has to lean on. This giant catalog of Disney vaulted movies that we grew up, grew up loving are going to be there. You're going to have stuff from Muppets, stuff from Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars. You're going to find something that you're going to love and in a great great volume too by the way you're not just going to get one or two things you're going to get a truckload of things that's the thing that they're going to have here oh and all by the way available for download which is insane if you think about it so i i mean how do you compare this and netflix just borrowed a ton of money like two billion dollars to kind of beef up their original content and we've seen stories recently that netflix is finally to the point where they're offering more original content on the service than they are their content that they've kind of licensed into the service, like Friends and, and things like that. Which, you know, once Warner 
gets their streaming service going, that could probably that's surely going to go bye bye as well as long as as well as a lot of other stuff. So let's talk about Netflix for a second. How do you survive this if you're Netflix? I don't think Netflix is going to get killed on December first. Okay, I don't think the second Disney launches their service, it's going to take a month and Netflix will go away. But how do you as Netflix look at your subscribers and say, by the way? We're charging you 13 bucks. Here's all the things we got. Now, by volume, Netflix will probably end up having more content. Somebody's going to do the math on that, and, and it'll pop up. We'll update the story on a future show if that happens. I'm sure that by volume, Netflix is going to have more stuff. But Disney says, you know what? We're going quality over quantity. And if, the, if Disney does anything very, very well, it's quality. They are willing to sink every dime they have, and they have a lot of them. To make sure that their stuff is the best it could possibly be. And I know Netflix is trying to do the best stuff that they can possibly do as well. But there's some stuff on there, and I'm not going to name names. But you know when you're browsing through Netflix, you're going, really? What the hell is that? I don't even know what that is. Or just certain things that just don't make a whole lot of sense. Or movies that aren't movies that are made by them. But they're just there to fill out the catalog to make it look like they've got a lot. This is what you can do when you own all of your own stuff. And you're buying a ton of stuff that you now own. Like, say, The Simpsons, for example, if you're Disney. You've spent all this money to say, this is all ours. This is our original content now. Whether it was ours originally from the start or not, it's ours now. This is all stuff that we own. We're not licensing out any of this stuff. This is not something that we're bartering in. No, no, no. This is our stuff. It's always great when you can keep all your own money in your own pocket. That's what Disney's doing. They're responsible for you know production and everything from start to finish. They're responsible for it. They have their own studios, Marvel Studios, Lucasfilm, stuff like that, that are responsible for their own avenues, but it's all coming out of the Disney bank account. Netflix can't say the same thing. I know Netflix is hoping to probably get there, but they're getting there from a position of being in a huge amount of debt right now. And I'm not saying that Disney doesn't borrow money either. We don't know every financial detail of everything that goes on. I'm sure that there are not just check blank checks that can be written all over the place. But what I'm saying is, is that it's all theirs. That's the thing. It's all theirs. So they don't have to pay anybody else to have this. They have it. Netflix doesn't have that option for a lot of their stuff. They're not there yet. Disney gets to start this there. How crazy is that? And, by the way, they've gotten all this time to see what Netflix has done well, what Netflix hasn't done well, and what they would do differently with their own content. They've been able to sit back, relax, and wait and see how they want to do this because they knew they could take as long as they want to launch the service, and it wouldn't matter because people are going to buy it anyway because that Disney name means something, and the Netflix name means something too. But... Disney has decades of fans that they have been able to lean on all of this time, all the way up to now. They have built that. Netflix doesn't have a legacy that long. You can't possibly have a legacy that long. Netflix has done a spectacular job at what they're doing. And you could even argue that Netflix's success made Disney do this in the first place. Made them take this step to do this. But in doing so, and this could be at least in small part to these Netflix Marvel shows, in doing that might have sealed their own fate because unless they drop their price a ton, this is going to be hard to compete with. Even with very quality programming, original programming, this is a hard sell to your subscribers when you see everything that Disney's going to have, all the quality, the fact that they're taking these multi-billion dollar movies putting them into TV series now and giving you the original actors and actresses that were in there that everybody knows you can't compete with that unless you drop your price. You better figure something out if you're Netflix because you are going to be on the back burner in a hurry. Once those viewers start to go away, the subscribers might not necessarily go away right away. Like I, I don't think I'd ever get rid of Netflix, honestly. It would take a lot for me to get rid of it. Because I love it, and I do love a lot of the shows on there. Can't wait for Lucifer, Lucifer to come back. I'm so psyched for that announcement that came this week, and a bunch of other stuff on there as well. We've got Shira and the Princesses of Power. You've also got Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. There's so much good stuff. We can't just sit here and act like Netflix doesn't have anything good. They've got a ton of good stuff. You got Game of Thrones coming back. You think people are getting rid of HBO? 
anytime soon? Absolutely not. But when you're looking at the price point and the content that Disney Plus is going to have at launch, how do you compete with that? And how do you explain that to your subscribers if you're anybody else? I can't wait to see where this goes. Okay, I want to get through some, a few other things really, really quickly before we get to our Justice League versus the Fatal Five interviews. We've also got the Adams Family animated movie trailer that dropped this week. And I know people are complaining about, you know, why is Gomez so fat and all this other stuff. First of all, don't body shame Gomez. He's a very sexy man and he knows it. But what we're saying, what we're seeing is, is this is based on the Adams Family comic strip, which we already knew anyway. This is from way back when. Google it, kids. You'll find it. it. It'll be fine. I like the vibe of this. It's kind of got this deadpan style in the first trailer. It's got a lot of that illumination type of humor in it that you see in the Despicable Me movies and stuff like that. That's the kind of vibe that it's setting off. It also has that very, you know, even and low tone to it, which I really, really love in the performances itself. This is going to be out October the 11th. 2019, if I'm not mistaken. I think it looks neat. I certainly think that it's hard to base it on, what, a 90-second trailer that we got. We don't really have enough to base this on yet. I think once we see more, we'll get a better idea of what we're looking at here. And it looks like it's the Adams moving into their house for the first time. So that could be a neat little story that we don't really know a whole lot about. And I'm a big Adams Family fan, so is my wife, so I know that we both can't wait for this one. I'm really, really looking forward to it, actually. Hopefully this leads to a ton of these movies. DC is going to be relaunching the Young Animal imprint, which was supposed to be their crazy, crazy, wacky, out there stories that they were going to be able to tell. And they started that with Doom Patrol a couple years ago. io9 reporting this and a bunch of other outlets as well. And it all kind of starts with a new Green Lantern book going to be titled Far Sector by N.K. Jimenez. And we've also got Jamal Campbell on the story there as well. Now, basically, the basis for this story is, if we can find it here, is that... It's going to be from their minds, and it's going to be following a far sector lantern called Sunjorn Joe Millen, who is a Green Lantern tasked with protecting the city, enduring a sprawling me- megalopolis where billions of people all live in relative peace because the city's residents have made not to feel emotion. So that's already really, really interesting right there. I'm not going to go through all of these descriptions bit by bit, but I do want to give you an idea of what we're talking about. We are going to get a new Doom Patrol title too, by the way, called Weight of the World, which is going to be by Jared Way, who did the original Doom Patrol Young Animal title, Jeremy Lambert on there as well. And this is also going to follow a cosmic adventure that takes the team of misfits beyond the boundaries of our color system on a road trip of sorts that introduces them all to a manner of strange and wonderful life forms entirely unlike themselves. Which, you know, that sounds like a fun little Doom Patrol story, right? That one's going to be available on July the 3rd, by the way. And then you have another story here called Collapser, which is going to be done by Mikey Way and Sean Simon. And as far as this one is concerned, it's going to be about an unsuccessful DJ whose life changes one day when he receives a mysterious package in the mail that somehow holds a miniature black hole. Hey, black hole's in the news right now. Why not do something about that? It's almost like they were foreshadowing and knew that this was coming. But, I mean, DC wanted to do something that was a little bit different, that was a little bit out there, might appeal to a different audience and a younger audience as well. And Young Animal was supposed to do that. And it's not to say that it didn't have good titles, because it certainly did. I think that it was unique in its own way. It just didn't work as a whole, though. There were one or two one or two titles. Some of them were a little too out there. It wasn't necessarily working. I mean, like Mother Panic was good for a little bit. Didn't really work for me. I didn't really think Doom Patrol worked after a certain number of issues. So, you know, it's sometimes it's good to take a step back, get perspective, find out what worked for you and what didn't in the imprint like this, and then just try to start again. And having a familiar title like a Green Lantern book, you've also got Doom Patrol, who now is that following on DC Universe. So that might help things out. And more original stories like Collapser, I think, will help Young Animal as well. And just let them do their thing. Just let them be the wacky, crazy uncle of the bunch that's just going to come in here and have a lot of fun. And, and you, you read the books, and it's a nice change of pace from what you usually have in your pull box. Really, really quickly, deadline reporting. And I wasn't going to let this story go because I'm a big Mighty Mouse fan. If you've listened to the show, you know that already. A Mighty Mouse movie is coming from Paramount Animation. Now, John and Eric Hober are going to be doing the script for this. It's going to be one of those hybrid animation live-action movies, which I don't necessarily hate the idea of. Although, 
I say this all the time, and I think that Who Framed Roger Rabbit is a wildly underrated movie and probably the only really, really good animation live-action hybrid. I know that Cool World is something that people will point out, and there's been a couple here and there that have been okay in the quote-unquote modern era, you know, like the Pixar era. Let's call it that. Disney's kind of ruling the world right now anyway. Why not Why not liken it to that? So, I don't know. It just seems to me like they've cornered the market on this, and we already know that uh, Paramount's got the Sonic movie coming, which kind of kind of be the same thing. So, that gives me a little bit of pause for this. I'm like, ugh, those character designs didn't look very good for Sonic. What are they going to do to Mighty Mouse? I'm a huge fan. I don't want to be bummed out about this, but... If you remember the Dynamite comic that Charlie Fish did not too long ago, it kind of had that animation live-action vibe, as much as you can do in a comic. But it was about Mighty Mouse being pulled into the real world sort of thing. And I won't ruin the story for you just in case they decide to do this for the movie. But if you want to closely adapt that story, that might be their best bet because it there were definitely some really relatable and real-world elements in there. So, I mean, I'm psyched for this. I'm going to watch it regardless. And I really, really hope it's great. And being able to be able to introduce my son to Mighty Mouse for the first time in this movie might, you know, you know, at least you pique your kid's interest, right? And then you show them the old, like, okay, here's what dad grew up on. This is what you got here. Here's what dad grew up on. And just see if they like that too. And as a parent, that's kind of what you want anyway, right? And hopefully your kids love the stuff that you loved growing up because I think it still holds up the Mighty Mouse cartoons as far as I'm concerned. It's going to do it for Nerd News up next. Going to talk about Justice League versus the Fatal Five with the cast and creators next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is voice actor Roger Craig Smith, and you guys are listening, you lucky people, to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And we're back. DC animated movie coming out this Tuesday, April the 16th. When I was at WonderCon 2019, got a chance to sit down with the cast, the producers, the writers to talk about this brand new movie, and we're going to start out with Suleiman Montano, who plays Emerald Empress, and the first question that I asked was, what's it like to show fans Emerald Empress, who's kind of a lesser-known character? Obviously, Wonder Woman's a really well-known character. Emerald Empress, though, not so much. What's it like to kind of bring her out and show fans, hey, check this out? Oh, I'm so excited. I was literally talking to Bruce Timm saying, thank you, thank you, thank you for giving me this character, because literally, like, she's... I didn't know about her before, but she is so powerful I, I mean like she's so formidable like her the the eye that she has I had no idea even that like I read the script but I until I actually saw the movie I didn't realize how powerful the eye is but you'll see in the movie how powerful it gets so uh, it's a, it's super fun I mean just to play any strong woman whether it's you know a good character or a bad character like that's that's that I feel like is important to me. My next question for Sulame was, what's the relationship like between her and the Fatal Five team? What's it like having another a whole team around you? Where do you? How do you feel like the relationship is there between her and the team, the rest of the Fatal Five? I kind of feel like I'm the leader. I mean, I think so too. Yeah, I I, I had said that earlier, but then there were uh, Phil. No, yeah, Phil who plays Mono. I was like, oh no, is he going to be offended if I say that I'm the leader? Because I don't I don't know. Maybe he thinks he's the leader. I don't know. But I'm like, well, one of you has Empress in your title. Just okay, yeah, I you. think that you kind of have that credit yeah. for. Okay, thank you. Yeah. I, I'm not. I wasn't positive, but yeah. I mean, she's. Yeah, I mean, she literally, like, when you see her on screen, I just get such a kick out of it. I mean, she just walks in, and she just, she owns everything, and they just kind of, like, follow me. Follow me. <laughs> uh, but I have a special relationship with Mono, so I think that'll that'll come out of the film. And I think that's another element to the Emerald Empress that I wasn't quite expecting, because, like, you're used to, like, baddies being, you know, bad, but I kind of feel like, ooh, she's got a look. She's, oh, did I, what was that a spoiler? I don't know. She's got a relationship. Ah, I don't know if I messed up. Um, anyway, she's got a relationship, and that's kind of adds some dimensionality to her. Next up was director Sam Liu, and my question for Sam was, how does the Justice League versus the Fatal Five slide into the mix of so many great DC anim- animated movies that have been released recently? It feels like you guys have really been on a roll lately, though. You've had a lot of really big winners. How do you feel like this one kind of slides into that momentum that you guys have got? Um, you know, it's uh, it's tough because, you know, I, I know like a lot of times when people watch movies, right, they, they're, they'll usually gravitate towards the ones that's a lot more sort of like, um, you know, heart 
heartfelt, you know, the ones that sort of like is probably a little more tragic, um, like dire, soul-wrenching things happen. Um, and so those usually t have a tendency, especially if they're sort of steeped in, um, in like superhero lore or history. You know? um, but we can't do those all the time because it's, you know what I mean? It's like we have to mix the flavors up because again, if we just do soul crushing to soul crushing to soul crushing to soul crushing, I think everybody's going to be bored and saying like, you know, oh, they just keep doing this soul crushing stuff and, you know, and so um, again, it's, it, it's difficult because sometimes, again, there's going to be something light, you know, and something, sometimes, um, you know, somebody that's beyond, you know, us as far as creators that are making decisions like this is popular or this is whatever and we want to fast track this and and sometimes it gets you gotta you know like come up with an idea within a couple of weeks and then you gotta like bring it to script and then you gotta produce it you know what I mean and then sometimes we don't have a lot of time you know most of the time we don't have a lot of time but um, but this one in this case I really like it you know personally uh, I think um, but I I like exploring characters and I like psychology of characters and I think this one in particular uh, we sort of touch upon characters that are not sort of just your common, you know, how do I, I'm a hero and how do I live up to, how do I, you know, not mess up my friends, you know what I mean, or whatever, or like, how do I get stronger, or how do I, you know, I think this, some of these are real, like, you know, mental health type things, you know what I mean, it's kind of like, I have this issue, and I can't deal with it, or I'm trying to deal with it, and, and so, um, it's been a lot of fun, to be honest, you know, and I think, like, a lot of, um, and a lot of credit has to go to the, the writers uh, for, for pairing these people, or putting people in certain scenarios that, um, I don't know, it was a lot of fun, and uh, I think, you know, um, in editing and watching it and stuff like that, like, subtle things about, like, oh, those people are together, and they're watching this, and they're doing that, and they're getting affected by this, um, I don't know, it's very subtle. Maybe it's only something that, you know, I'll appreciate or like, you know, if you're really, really into it, you'll appreciate. But um, but there's a lot of really touching things in it, you know, I think. So, um, yeah, um, it's, it's, it's one of the ones I, I, I like the most sort of working on, so. The amazing Philip Anthony Rodriguez was up next, who was the voice of Mono. My question for him was, what's it like bringing someone different like Mono into these DC movies. What's well, it like kind of trying to bring something different to the fold with the Fatal Five with Mana, maybe somebody that hasn't been heard of a lot before? It's, it's, for lack of a better, it's, it's just life changing. It's such a thrill. Um, somebody asked me earlier, have I, have I seen a movie? And I was like, yeah, of course. We got sent a, you know, a link before anybody else gets to see it, and you get to see the final project. I mean, I've done a whole bunch of like video games and played really good characters with, with the cinematic parts and just characters doing the mocap and stuff like that, but not a lot of animation. So for me, this is a real treat to play like quasi iconic villain character in the DC universe and then to just have someone say uh, what are you bringing to the table with it Phil and then it's like well I, I think he's this what do you guys think and they're like that's spot on your 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 interpretation is exactly what we're looking for and then it's just like oh well that's it you know everything is right and cool with the world now but um, I, I, like I told somebody else they were like well, where did you draw from and uh, I, I said, I, I looked at some of the descriptions in the, in the comic books, and then when they were showing me a couple of the uh, prints of what the character in this particular Justice League movie was going to look like, then you sort of like put two and two together, and you look at his dialogue, and you look at his description, and what came to mind with the voice, which I'll ultimately translate into the voice, was Ricardo Montalban, specifically mm. in Star Trek Wrath of Khan, or Space Seed, and if you're talking about the original series, and then like the other 50% was my dad, rest his soul, you know, who was not unlike Ricardo Montalban, coming from Puerto Rico, he had a little bit of an accent and stuff like that. But it was just a flavor that I was looking for. It was just like a like there was a a, a a dark broodiness about him, even though he doesn't really have like facial expressions. He's got this dome on this somewhat nondescript face with featureless face, which makes it even harder yeah, to, to interpret that. And then you really have to like dig <laughs> dig deep into the darkest realms of someplace to to come up with something. And you take a deep breath, you speak into the mic. That what you're looking for? Yeah, spot on. Let's do it. And then you're just like, I'm in heaven. I, I you know. And and then you feel good about it because then you you not only like please the powers that be and the producers of the of the project and director, 
but um, you've also like paid homage to my dad, who was a big hero of mine when he was alive and, and passed too, and then another iconic actor who well, was a big fan of because of his movies and the things that he did and stuff. And, it's just, it's just a all, all win, one big, gigantic, tasty soup. So you know we had to ask Philip after what Suleme said, hey, who's the leader of the Fatal Five? Oh, see, no, I can't tell you that. Because that, that, that's, uh, that's definitely a spoiler. <laughs> well, I'll leave it at this. Everyone's going to say that they're the leader, as is typical for villains. You know? <laughs> Especially like villain teams. It's like, no, I don't think so. I'm the leader. <laughs> and it's why they ultimately end up losing, because they, they're fighting amongst themselves. So I'll leave it at that. My next question for Philip was, you know, he said that Mono was a man of few words. So was there any pressure on him to kind of bring it for every line? You said he was a man of few words. Did you feel like when you saw that you're like, okay, now I need to make, I need to bring it for each and everything that I do. Did you kind of have a little bit of that pressure on you? Yeah, yeah. It's that when, from a dialogue perspective, when you have <laughs> zipper, zippy, zingery little one-liners, um, it's very easy to look at it and say like, well, I got nothing. You know, I don't, I don't know what to do this. So yeah, it's hard when you have like. A simple thing of just saying stop, you know, or something like that. It's like there's a gazillion ways you could do that, depending on what the scene or or the or the storyline calls for. So in some ways it can be really challenging, but then you can't overthink it either. So it's a real fine line. But yeah, you got you got to be on your toes when <laughs> when you have you know, little one-liners here and there and not think too much about it. Next up was Daniela Bobadilla, who plays Miss Martian, and the first question for her was. How's your take on the character of Miss Martian different from other portrayals? She's written differently. This is a different part of her life, and I hope that they do a prequel and show more of that because this is her in her first moments with me, and she's not yet a part of it, um, which is super exciting. I think she's just, it's almost a reminder of how epic it is what they do. They're so used to it. It's just Wonder Woman, they're just Batman. Um, so I like that she's like, put me in coach, you know, like she's so ready. Almost too ready at some scenes, as you'll see. Um, she jumps ahead of the gang, but it doesn't even phase her, and she's just there, literally, like, she's the thorn at Batman's side. Uh, yeah, so I think she's just witty in this, and she really wants it, and I really like that about her. As soon as I read her first line, like, I'm Miss Martian jackass, like, <laughs> that's, so I just went along with what it was I didn't really take. Um, sorry, Danica, but I didn't really watch that, because I think it's a different interpretation of her in a really good way. My question for Dan Yellow was, is there an interaction with another character in the movie that she sort of enjoys? Seems like she's got a lot of interesting interactions, not just with Batman, but with some of the other characters as well. Is there another favorite that you had during when you, when you were doing this that you're like, I really like it these two together? Yeah, definitely. I mean, my favorite scenes are the ones with Batman. Um, but yeah, I love how she... I would be very intimidated to be in that room. And I love how she just goes, what's our plan? What are we doing? Um, and I really love that when she's in people's brain, so when she goes into Starboy's brain um, at one point, she's very inquisitive and she's very curious. So I also like that about her, that she's not unfazed, but she's not overly phased either. Finally, my last question for Daniela was, I mean, hey, she says that Miss Marsha feels like she belongs in this Justice League, so how do the other League members respond to that? So clearly she feels like she belongs with the Justice League. How do you feel like the other members aside from Batman are responding to how, how her confidence? Yeah, you know, they don't address it. So I feel like they're okay. Like at one point I addressed Wonder Woman, which I thought was amazing. Um, and she just answers as if I am part of the League. So I think they're okay with having me there. And I don't think Miss, or I don't think that Miss Martian cares. <laughs> so then I won't care. <laughs> when you think of DC Animation, you definitely think of executive producer Bruce Tim. The first question for Bruce was, was this movie actually planned to be a Justice League Unlimited continuation? I mean, it wasn't planned. Uh, this movie was not, it didn't start out to be a Justice League Unlimited uh, continuation. Uh, it was originally going to be a standalone. Um, 
the, the dirty secret of these movies is that they're done on a very tight budget and very tight schedule. So uh, we really, really rely on having to use our old stock characters and stock vehicles and backgrounds and things from previous productions. So um, it kind of limits what we can do design-wise for a movie. Um, so we couldn't afford to come up with an all-new style for the movie. So that really meant, okay, either the DCAU style or the Phil Barossa style from the, the New 52. Which I didn't want to do that because then it would be too, it would confuse people with the new 52 movies. So that, oh, but I could use Phil's designs from Crisis on Two Earths and Doom because they look different enough. So that was my idea. So we, we, we started designing the movie that way. And then in the meantime, we recorded the, the, the script and uh, we were fortunate enough to have George and Kevin and Susan come back as, as Batman and Wonder Woman and, and Superman. Um, and then James Tucker came to me and said, don't you think people are going to be confused when they see these Phil DeBrasso designs and they're going to think that it's part of like, the, B the, the, the new 52 universe? And I kind of went, yes, yes, they will be. So at that point, we were already like two weeks into designing the show. So just to make up for lost time, it, their only solution at that point was just to go back to the, the, the Justice League Unlimited designs. So at that point, since we already had Kevin and, and George and Susan, we said, okay, now we're going to shift gears. We're going to totally make this in the Justice League, of the universe. Uh, Justice League Unlimited Universe. So we had to do a couple tweaks in the script, um, uh, that which, which, which we fixed in ADR. And, uh, but that was it. I mean, it, it actually fit very, very easily in the continuity of, of what we had done before. So um, I, I was happy to do it. And the more we, we did that, the more we leaned into it, the more fun it became for me. So, you know, when it came to uh, hiring the uh, a composer, for the movie, it made sense to go back to the Diamond Dynamic Music Partners and bring, go back to that Justice League Unlimited sound. So it was all kind of like you know, kind of like a you know, high school reunion or something, but but more fun. My question for Bruce Tim: Doing so many of these movies, does he like to kind of switch up the heroes a little bit? Do you like to switch things up with the heroes too? Like you got Mr. Terrific in this one, mm -hmm. and Miss Marsh. What's it like to kind of bring new heroes in every now and then and have them with the Justice League? Uh, Again, it's 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 not a preference. It's it's, it's an apples and oranges thing. Um, when again, when we plotted, when we first started talking about the story, it wasn't intended to be a Justice League Unlimited continuation. If it was, I probably would have come up with a completely different story. It probably wouldn't be about Jessica Cruz and Starboy. It's just it, 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 each one is different, you know. I mean, I, I like I like using the familiar characters. I also like using the deep bench characters. I love going, you know, using really weird, obscure DC characters as well. So um, it's you know, fortunately, I get to have my cake and eat it too. You know, if I wait long enough. So. Eilis Gable sat down next to play Starboy in the movie, and the first question for him was, what are some of the favorite things that he had about the character? He's a, you know, he runs through not remembering where he is, why he's there, and the tool of needing the medication to keep his superhero powers become, you know, it verges us onto a territory of mental illness. Um... But also, it, it is a tool by which he is, he's, he, he perambulates back and forth. He mentions he likes pudding. There's a lot, there, there are a few different lines that I like. I liked, um, there's a Cormac McCarthy um, reference where he talks about the, um, the when lambs is uh, scared, they cry, sometimes come the mother, sometimes come the wolf. Pretty, pretty good, huh? My question for Eilis was, is there a specific interaction that your character had that stood out to you m the most when you saw the finished product? Is there a specific interaction with another character on the movie that you're like, that really stands out to you now that, now that you're done? I like the, I mean, I like the, a couple of the scenes with Jessica Cruz because I suppose they're both trying to, I like scenes where, because this is how people interact, where you are both trying to, define or get what something is and often the roles are subverted there's one scene I think in particular where he's he's championing her because he's saying that she is she is that person she is the hero and they've come back and she is the person um, that he's been tasked to save you know uh, he's almost like the, the, the shepherd but he's vulnerable as well so there's um, there's a seesaw that works there. Um, I, I like. I suppose I like those scenes because I like sort of finding that maybe. Um, but this, there's some fun scenes as well. I like the scene at the end, which we'll see. 
It was so wonderful to see the Trinity sit down together. Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman, George Newbern, Superman, and Susan Eisenberg as Wonder Woman. So the first question was obvious. What's it like being back together with these characters again? I think these characters are so familiar to us that it's, it is like putting on a familiar suit. Yep. You know, we all know these characters so well. The trick is keeping them fresh, yeah. keeping it alive, keeping it yeah. new. And, and keeping uh, the gig. <laughs> and, you know, because we don't have control over that. So no. when that phone rings and they say, we want you for this project, who am I going to be playing? Wonder Woman. Oh, and then you get to play with these guys again. It's um, very few jobs are this gratifying because, I mean, I get to see these guys and I get to play this extraordinary woman. It's amazing. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. My question for the group was, what's it like to work with a new set of characters and villains in Justice League versus the Fatal Five? And we've played these characters for so long. What's it not, what, how's it like to work with a new set of characters, a new set of villains that maybe you haven't gotten to deal with before, like Batman? Well, that's what was so interesting, the because see they're either. younger. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah. They weren't actually in the recording yeah, studio so with us. But, um, but it is a new element to our characters. They're so much younger. Yeah. So we're the old guys now. Speak for yourself. <laughs> Finally, it was the screenwriters Eric Carrasco and Jim Krieg who sat down. My question for them, you have voices in your head and you have like Batman and Wonder Woman. You know, Batman being Kevin Conroy, Wonder Woman, Susan Eisenberg, but not the Fatal Five. Not a lot of familiarity with them, so how do you work with that? So on the flip side of that, you've got voices that you hear in your head for certain characters. Now you've got the Fatal Five, who there's probably no voice anyone's ever heard for them. Right. So nope. how do you well, work with that as a writer? There was a bit of a template for the Fatal Five because they're in one episode of Justice League Unlimited, uh, Far From Home, I think. Um, and so they kind of had a, a tone established, and so you can have a certain amount of Emerald Empress's voice in your head, but that's a couple scenes in a 22-minute episode, and this was wildly expanded, and they have new and different motivations and, and goals, and so... There was a process of going back to the comics and pulling from Jim Shooter comics and pulling from Paul Levitt stuff and trying to make kind of the the uber version of the Fatal Five. It's kind of interesting because uh, the the story that uh, that Eric conceived with with Jessica Cruz and and Starboy is is a fairly sensitive and you know intricate and, and thoughtful story and then and then it's kind of juxtaposed against the Fatal Five were, were created by a 14 year old boy you know because <laughs> Jim Shooter was a kid giant axe and, yeah, and, and hands and, that can destroy and, anything and I say that with love because I love these I love those stories in particular because they come from the heart they're like you're it's like the fan making the thing that the fan likes and and so it's it's super simple Silver Age stuff. They're you know, kind of next to something that is a little more modern. There is something so exciting to me about telling what I think is a very modern story with Starboy and Jessica Cruz, which is exactly what you're saying, that it's grounded and emotional and, and has these really like intimate moments. And then you've also got the Emerald Eye of Ekron, a giant floating eyeball that shoots green blasts, and Validus, who can shoot lightning bolts from his brain, which is exposed. Like it's it's crazy. And it's, I, by the way, I, I mean, so like much. all of those characters are descriptions that that like have to be written by a young adolescent. It's like he's a giant guy, and lightning bolts come out of his head, you know. And it's like, you know what I mean? Because uh, you, you, it would be hard to, as a as a as a PhD student, say, well, he's a giant, and you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Gonna be so amazing to see Justice League versus the Fatal Five, and you could do that by owning it on DVD, Blu-ray, 4K on Tuesday, April the 16th. Also, if you're a DC Universe subscriber, look for the movie up there as well. It looks amazing, and I can't wait to check it out. It's gonna do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to the cast and crew members of Justice League versus the Fatal Five for joining me this week. You can find more of our interviews at downandnerdypodcast.com. You can get access to our YouTube page, too. There might be some videos up there of these uncut interviews, like the director's cut of the interview. Also, a bunch of other stuff on our social media pages, facebook.com slash downandnerdy, also at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram as well. Don't forget to check out our sponsor this week as well, Audible, where you can get your first audiobook for free, plus two Audible originals, 
Go to audible.com slash DNPod or text DNPod to 500-500 to get that right now. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds.